Welcome to the bonus episode of the Community Renewables podcast. This time, Craig and I simply wanted to briefly summarize the main findings of the entire podcast. So, Craig, one main question was, is Red2 toothless? Right. Red2 is the EU's Renewable Energy Directive of 2018, which calls for more community renewables. So, what's your answer, Craig? Well, like all laws, it's toothless if not enforced. Red 2 is an opportunity. Member states have one more year until next summer to transpose it into national law. A group of NGOs have put together some recommendations. We'll put a link in the show notes. We really have to get this right. If member states aren't meticulous about their national laws, community renewables may indeed fall by the wayside. If we want it, we have to fight for it, and the time is now. Yes. Red 2 will hopefully be the start of putting citizens and not consumers and big companies at the heart of policymaking. Which, Rebecca, brings me to our other main question. Why fight for community renewables at all? If big firms can get us to 100% renewables quickly and affordably, why not just let them do it? You were not always happy with some of the reasons our guests gave. So what would you say now? Why do we need community renewables? Well, to begin with, lots of our guests have questioned the premise in your question, that big firms can get us there quickly and affordably. Lots of new changes are coming that require more public participation, from change behavior like flying less or recycling more and eating less meat, to the uptake of new technologies like demand management. So people charging their electric cars only when there's lots of renewable power on the grid. And this brings me to the issue of acceptance, or more generally, the social dimension. Community projects, and even more specifically cooperatives, are democracy in practice. People come together, negotiate, and find solutions together. This collaboration creates a new community spirit. Community renewables in particular reduces rural exodus. I mean, let's face it, renewable projects will mainly be built in the countryside, even if done by big firms. If the profits then flow back to corporate headquarters in big cities, small towns will once again be left behind. So local ownership in the energy transition is a one-time opportunity to empower rural areas largely left behind during globalization over the past few decades. Yes, and your list reminds me that the benefits of community renewables are hard to measure. I mean, a lot of them are not even monetary. In this podcast, we talked about building up public trust in institutions and in each other. Strengthening rural communities is important, but I don't know what number I would use to express that. I mean, it helps when we can say things like 1.5 degrees Celsius or 100% renewable, but there's not always a number for everything that's important. And with community renewables, 
you can create a new identity for rural areas in the process. Craig, you have talked about the need for us to move beyond mere acceptance towards popular buy-in, ownership and identification with the transition. Absolutely. We need to be proud that we are doing the right thing. Proud of the wind farms, cycling paths and everything else we do to prevent climate change. Mere acceptance is not enough. And today, renewable energy developers in Germany have a hard time finding land for their projects because of resistance. If citizens were included, they would talk with everyone involved and do their best to find an agreement. And there's another factor we haven't touched upon, but that's worth mentioning. This social sense of community will also improve people's general physical and psychological health, prevent depressions and help us live longer. I couldn't agree more. It really does matter how we reach zero carbon. We can make the world a better place in the process or turn it into a nightmarish technocracy in which the public is held to be too stupid to do the right thing, so we have to listen to the experts. And the experts don't always agree on the solution. They agree on what the problem is. So listening to them is step one of many steps. And let's not forget the Irish Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change and the recent one in France. In both cases, citizens who had the time and resources to learn about climate change came up with proposals far more ambitious than what politicians had previously dared. So people are not stupid, they just need the space to discuss things and become informed and get involved. We can also see community renewables from a crisis perspective. We are still in a pandemic and more global crises are to come. What the pandemic shows us is that global trade has been set up to be efficient. But this efficiency has come at the expense of resilience. Community renewables is more crisis-proof in addition to being sustainable. Plus, it reduces our energy imports. That's right. Places on the U.S. East Coast hit by hurricanes in recent years are now looking to set up small microgrids because, as you said, Rebecca, the next crisis is coming. And distributed renewables apparently helps prevent power outages. And let's not forget the reasons most experts give when asked to list the benefits of community energy. Local jobs and a more level playing field between firms big and small. Okay, now let's move on to our main takeaways, Rebecca. What did you learn from this podcast? So, in my experience as a UN Youth Delegate on Sustainable Development, I saw us set international goals, be it the Sustainable Development Goals or the Paris Agreement. But we tend to forget that implementation happens mostly at the local level. Right. Communities are where people experience the energy transition. And hence, we need to involve communities in these discussions and support them, not block them during implementation. The energy transition is not only a technological transformation, but a social one. And even though acceptance was the topic of my master thesis, 
there's one thing I've learned here. You cannot buy public acceptance. Compensation schemes don't address the underlying structural problems. Yeah, money is the solution if a lack of money is the problem. But if people don't like the location of a planned wind farm, offering them money could backfire. They might feel that they are being paid to shut up. Indeed, sometimes payments work, sometimes they don't. And the other way around is also true. Money is not the only motivation for people. We had numerous examples in this podcast of people wanting to do the right thing, even though they wouldn't earn any money. And I know of examples from my own circle of family and friends where people had a few thousand euros and wanted to invest it ethically. So they put solar on their roof, even though it doesn't make them any profits. And speaking of money, the whole debate on cost made me rethink this. Why do we talk so much about the price tag for saving civilization? The price doesn't make sense anyway, without external costs and other democratic benefits. Which are often hard to quantify. True. And the market does a good job at serving the wishes of the wealthy. It's not so good at meeting the needs of everyone regardless of income. Which is why we don't leave things like healthcare up to the market alone. And that raises the question of where climate change mitigation, where saving civilization exists along this spectrum. Is it a commodity best left up to the market on one side of the spectrum? Or should parts of it be taken out of the market because we are talking about human rights some of the time? How many parts? I don't think we answered that question in this podcast, but I think we did phrase the question fairly well, and it would be great if everyone would discuss this. Yeah, you know, a week or so ago on Twitter, someone asked, what difference does it make how we get to zero carbon as long as we do so quickly? And it absolutely does matter, especially since if people dislike some outcomes and side effects along the way, they will slow the transition down. And so that's the fallacy of this assumption. Too many people think that simply moving quickly is enough as long as the price tag is acceptable. And that's not true. How we get to zero carbon matters. So, anything else, Rebecca? Well, even though I follow German energy policy, I got a more profound picture from this podcast of what auctions really mean for community energy. And it basically brings me to this conclusion. If you want to slow down the energy transition and stop community energy, use auctions. And I learned from the historical review and the international overview that the grassroots movement in Germany brought about the law that enabled community renewables and not the other way around. Everyone talks as though the German Renewable Energy Act brought about community energy. But the grassroots movement brought about that law. So when similar laws are adopted outside Germany, they don't create a grassroots movement. Laws can't do that anyway. So the question becomes, how do you create grassroots movements? And the answer, as we also learned in this podcast, is that in the 90s, the Germans had Agenda 21 groups on the ground 
that reacted to the Renewable Energy Act. So top climate policymakers should focus on trickling down, creating community groups that meet in order to discuss how they can make their communities better. Communities are where people engage, where the climate rubber hits the transition road, so we need to go back to think globally, act locally. Finally, we can no longer move fast enough. But saying it's too late is not the point. Rather, we should stress that every little bit matters. And every tenth of a degree Celsius could make a huge difference. And what about you, Craig? Did you learn anything from this podcast? I certainly did, and I came to a better appreciation of many things. For instance, I've come to a better appreciation of how frustrated so many community projects are here in Germany. I mean, we've had numerous guests talk about how everything is blocked for them going forward. So let me just add a quote from an article written by U.S. journalist Dan Garino, and we'll add a link in the show notes. He came over to Germany thinking that he was going to learn how grassroots renewables works so he could take the idea back to the U.S., But what he found here was a lot of dispirited people. One of the community project leaders he spoke with, and here comes the quote, one of them told him, The people I fought for and with are a bit sad and tired. We're kind of worn out. And I feel the same way. Just to give you my personal example, in the 90s, I saw a car-free neighborhood being built in Freiburg, Germany, where I lived at the time. It was the people who wanted to move in, not city officials, who insisted that this new neighborhood be car-free. And I remember thinking, when this is finished, we will have proven that car-free neighborhoods are just better to live in, and there will be no turning back. But you know what? Freiburg has added new neighborhoods since the 90s, and none of them are car-free. The most recent development wasn't because people living across the street feared that their new neighbors would have cars anyway, but just parked them across the street in the old neighborhood, which didn't happen in the development from the 90s, by the way. So why did it work in the 90s? One big reason was that the new residents themselves worked directly with the architects and had cut out the housing developers in between. So they basically created what's called Baugruppen, or building groups. The people who wanted to move in met every week to discuss construction plans with the architect. And so if the neighbors across the street, in the old neighborhoods, were worried about cars filling up their streets, there was a meeting every week. Everyone could meet eye to eye and talk it over. But in this recent housing project, a housing firm was involved. And in most cases, we didn't know who was going to move in. And so when the people across the street complained, there were no future neighbors to talk to and build up trust. There was only a housing firm that probably just wanted to quell the protests so they could finish the project. No one was there to represent the interests of the future residents who were not even known anyway. Wow. That's a really good example of what several people in this podcast have said about community renewables. We need a different kind of economy. And 
the interests of future generations are not represented well today either. Yeah, um, but you see, I thought we were showing once and for all that this new world would be a better place and there'd be no turning back, but we have turned back. So pretty much everyone I know here has been frustrated for at least the past five years. Maybe you should see a therapist. Maybe you should become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> anyway, um, another thing I learned is that community projects need to professionalize. Over and over, we have heard that community groups are often volunteers. Going forward, we probably need to become more professional. I mean, the energy sector is simply more complex than, I don't know, a farmer's market. Right. I also now better understand that all the laws and rules are complicated. We should focus policies on making it easier for people to do the right thing and become involved in climate action. But I suppose the laws are not going to become any simpler anytime soon. I wouldn't bet on it. And that leads me to my next insight. To help community groups professionalize, there should be a national one-stop shop for community projects. Some hotline for people launching a project to call so they can tap into a network of expertise that helps them get started. Cool idea, but a hotline for community projects? That sounds like you'll need to define who can call. And we have learned in this podcast that it's really hard to define when a project is community and when it isn't. Right, but the one-stop shop could be open to everyone. Back when German law didn't define what was community and what wasn't, we had lots of community projects because the law treated everyone equally. Which auctions no longer do. Correct. Auctions discriminate against community efforts. So everyone should be able to call the hotline, but professional firms wouldn't much because they already know the rules. In contrast, community groups could learn what forms need to be filled out, what expertise they need to farm out, and so forth. And the one-stop shop could set them up with a local network of lawyers, engineers, whatever, so that the community project can take the next steps. So in the end... I learned that there is a lot of pent-up will to do the right thing. We need policies that unleash the eagerness people have to make their own communities more livable. People are so distant from where their food comes from or where their energy comes from. But if you get people involved, I'm sure you get sustainability faster. That's an important point to drive home. In these days of populism, More and more people worried about the climate are saying democracy doesn't move fast enough. But the failings people point to are cases where democracy is poorly designed. And we don't have democracy in the energy sector. Right. Democracy doesn't mean walking down the street, asking people what they think about issues that they frankly haven't thought about much. For democracy to work, we need to give people the time and resources to educate themselves and negotiate a consensus with their neighbors. Things like Agenda 21 and citizens' assemblies. Exactly. And we would have a new society as a result, not just new climate policy. Let me put it this way. With big utility projects, 
you can create thousands of millionaires. With community projects, you create millions of thousandaires. So the energy transition is about what kind of world we want to live in. We have to decide.